Tom Chicken, you are listening to the Quarter to Three Movie Podcast for uh, Prometheus. <laughs> Save it for the podcast. Wow, I, I don't know that. Can we? Well, okay, uh, I am here, of course, oh. with Christian Wierzbowski. All right, I'll settle for Alorance. <laughs> and with a. Uh, Prometheus tagline, Kelly. You don't Wall. even like saying it. No, I can't help it. Spoiler That's such a tip off. You don't even. You can't even. All right. Can you say the name of the movie, Kelly Wan, without like sighing or heaving in disgust or something beforehand? Let's hear you try it. Do it. Prometheus. See. So give me the tagline. What do you got? I can't think of any more annoying shape to be crushed to death by than a donut edgewise. <laughs> But since she only does push-ups, she's not used to thinking horizontally. Wow, that was just so dense with meaning and, and, and references, Kelly Wan. That was beautiful. It's a sign uh, of things to come, Tom. I look forward to it. Well, let's not spoil anything. Maybe you haven't seen uh, Prometheus uh, yet, in which case we will not spoil anything just yet. Stand by. There will be spoilers, though. We want to warn you. But before we do that, Dingus, why don't you tell folks... Oh, God, what we sat through, I mean, what we saw this week. <laughs> I'm not going to do any, I'm, I'm not going to do any passive-aggressive sign. I'm not going to do it. This week we saw Prometheus. I did it. So forced. So forced. Well, the thing is, no, that was so forced that you might as well have just let the sigh out before you said the title. I did let it out, but not through my mouth. <laughs> wow. That's, I'm just going to let that run around in my imagination while you proceed. It's a 2012 science fiction standalone movie ah. about daddy issues, directed by Ridley Scott. <laughs> it was written by John Spates and Damon Lindelof. <sighs> oh, you know what, Tom? I, that wasn't even... It, it just came out of... It was involuntary, I know. Yeah, it was. His yeah. name... Yeah, it hurts. Yeah. Sorry, Dick. Yeah. That's quite all right. It stars uh, Kate Dickey. Benedict Wan, Eamon Elliott, Michael Fassbender, Numi Repose, Idris Elba, Charles Stone. Uh-huh. Uh, Prometheus is rated R ah. for sci-fi violence, including some intense images and brief language. <laughs> so we're going to avoid the F word and still get an R. <laughs> what was Wait, the... what was it? Yeah, yeah I... I thought that was the only thing you could get an R for saying anymore. Whatever uh, it was, it was Bryce. Yeah. <laughs> you can say it once, and then, but if you're there was twice, a couple of F-word instances, but they were the the usual, like we're going to try to use the F-word and it be masked by some other noise. But there's so much other crap going on. <laughs> I don't know why they bothered. So if you say the F-word in a very noisy environment where it's possible that children might not hear, then you get a different MPAA disclaimer. I think so. I mean, okay. you know, remember remember the the use of mother. In uh, I don't know, like uh, that one with that comic book movie with all the girls escaping from prison and that other movie. Charlie's uh, this is that same I... thing. Sucker no, punch. No, that comic book. Yeah, Sucker Punch. Thank you. Ah, right. You know, comic book. Um, and I think Battleship did that too. 
Battleship definitely masked the, well, and certainly the most recent Die Hard. It's oh, a yeah, waste very, of a black good. actor to not have the F word in an R-rated yeah. movie. So, so they they uh, didn't bother. They they did a couple of those maskings, but there was so much other R stuff. I don't know why they bothered. I think they were surprised they got an R. Well, you know, to be fair, and this is this is not spoil anything. Uh, Ridley Scott during shooting was actually trying to make it possible that he could try to that he could give the studio a PG thirteen cut. What a pussy. Well, you know, he he did it both ways. Like he he was clearly shooting it as an R, but he was hedging his bets to make it a PG thirteen cut. And for whatever reason, he won that battle. You know, they did let him do an R R rated release. Uh, but you know what? Let's hold that thought. We don't want to spoil anything. Uh, Kelly Wand, I can't wait to get to you. But before I do, let me just quickly say it opened at fifty million dollars. Hmm. Cool, easy, even fifty million. Not fifty point one. Not fifty two million. Not forty eight point nine. Fifty million dollars. Beat by Madagascar three though. Beat oh. I should say. <laughs> really? Oh yeah, yeah. Madagascar did like I think sixty two, sixty something like that. Uh, I was, hate that I, I'm interested. Well, it was neck and neck on Friday, uh, because I think a lot of Prometheus turnout was Friday. The kind of people who would go opening night, but over the course of the weekend, for for various reasons, including that Prometheus's are that uh, Madagascar is a kid, a family movie, so more people are likely to see it on a Saturday afternoon, a Sunday afternoon. Madagascar easily pulled ahead over the course of the weekend, and it turned out that Prometheus was number two. The Madagascar uh, characters have so much juice in them, story-wise. Compared to the Prometheus characters? Right. Yes. <laughs> Give me some more math, Tom. Did okay, you hear the word characters just then? Uh, you know, I speak loose, loosely. Yeah. All right. Uh, thank you. Uh, well, let's call them character outlines. About that. It's, it's a more accurate way. No. Don't. But let's right. do math. Right okay. or me not. Yeah. Let's let's do some math real quick. So on Metacritic, which gauges the average rating of reviews that give a review a movie a rating, uh, Prometheus is at sixty four. <laughs> on Rotten Tomatoes, which have you guys looked at Rotten Tomatoes by the way? Never. No. I, I let no. you do that. Okay, well, I'm just curious. I would like you guys to guess. So Rotten Tomatoes gauges what percentage of reviews of Prometheus are positive. Are we included in that? Oh, good Lord, no. No. <laughs> good Lord, no. <laughs> I'm going to guess 41. Okay, Kelly Wand, what percentage of reviews would you guess? These are the critics, not the Joe Blows, right? Correct, because it's not an audience ranking thing. These are the ho- These are the online nerds, like us. Well, it's online. It's somehow more clout than us. It's Roger Ebert. Uh, I wish Roger Ebert gave it a uh, five out of five stars. He loved loved how little. He loved how. um, He gave it five stars? Yes. Out of four. (laughs) (laughs) Roger Ebert loved but but Roger Ebert aside, actually, he is included. Including Roger Ebert, Kelly Wand, what percentage of reviews of Prometheus would you say are positive? Dingus has said 41% are positive. What would you guess? Uh. 69. All right. That's my answer to everything, isn't it? Because <laughs> that number, according to the movie Goon, is funny. <laughs> uh, Kelly, yeah, why you win? Uh, it's 74% of all the reviews of this uh, are positive. That means no one knows what they thought of it. They, you know, uh, they can't figure it out. They're like, uh... Because I, I think I said something that was like B-. minus was like some guy's review, and I was thinking, wait, what? And then after I saw it, I went, okay, yeah, B minus. Let's see what they're saying. Like a B minus is a sort of a non-committal. It's not boring. I'll give it that. I think we'll, you disagree. Well, hang on. We have oh, you know what? Yeah, let's we, find We haven't done the percentage for this podcast yet, so we don't know. 
That's true. This podcast's Rotten Tomatoes internal Rotten Tomatoes rating is so not out yet. Important. So yeah, so hold on for that. But before we do that, uh, if you haven't seen uh, Prometheus, Kelly, wait, wait, did you have any more about percentiles? You wish to? Uh, not real well. Here's something that kind of surprised me. So. I don't want to give away what I think of Prometheus, but I would think that Prometheus... Yeah, you said it. <laughs> I've been practicing. It took me a With while. A to smile on your face. I so I, I would think that, that the average, that if you were to look at like average reviews in general of Prometheus, you would get, sure, 74% of the people liked it. But if you were to hit that little top critic filter on Rotten Tomatoes, where they just use the large publications, the established reviewers, that the number would drop substantially. Because I don't understand, whatever, I, 74% of all the people who got paid, who get paid to review right. movies like this thing. So but of course, the public doesn't even like it. And they're, they're the usually public. the right, right. Forget the public. Let's just assume then that 74% of all Yahoo reviewers are like, yeah, Prometheus B-, minus. it was great special effects, visually stunning, mm-hmm. whatever. So once you hit that top critic button and you filter out the people who should know better, the number would drop substantially. However, it doesn't. It's 73% once you get to top critics, and that, that's what surprises me. I think, and I don't, I'm going to get ahead of myself a little bit, I think Prometheus is just trash, and it's, it's, it's awful, and I can't imagine that 73% of established reviewers didn't hate it. Uh, so I find... They're just desperate. It's such a shitty time for movies. No, it's not. We yeah. saw... You know, you know what? I'll have more to say about this shortly. So... <laughs> There we go. So that's enough math. Let's do some pros. Kelly Wand, what if I were to ask you? Do you mean pros like Prometheus's script? <laughs> pros from the pros. But longer. Kelly Wand, what do you got for us? What would you call it if I were to say mm. to you, hey, why don't you tell me everything that happened in uh, Prometheus? You know what would I call that work of fiction? Yeah. A Prometheopsis. Awesome. That's exactly what I expected. Let's hear a Prometheopsis rock and roll. All right. By the way, writing this creatively felt like the way the chick in the movie felt after the C-section. <laughs> in case you ever wondered how it felt. All right, Prometheopsis, you sweet stone fuckwads. <laughs> movie science fiction. Ergo, back in biblical times... A bald, hairless alien takes off his robe so he can drink some waterfall runoff with black goo, chaser, from an abalone shell while he watches his spaceship do nothing. Or maybe he's one of our ancestors who doesn't give a shit about spaceships and just tunes them out, even though they're everywhere. The way I do everything Kardashian-related. Anyway, he gets poisoned or poisons himself, depending on which film nerd you're stuck in the elevator with. And Hell disintegrates. Hold on a second. Yeah. When you said Cardassian related, I thought it was a Star Trek reference. <laughs> I, and then, like a sentence or two later, it hit me. So I'm sorry, I just I, I interrupted you. I just wanted to say, Tom, I got, I got that. I don't know what the hierarchy of shame should be for that comment. <laughs> I think whatever it is, I'm I'm in the bottom of it. I'm I'm willing to put myself there. Wait, I thought they were named after the Star Trek characters. <laughs> and. The Star Trek character, the Star Trek aliens at least have pointed ears, but in Prometheus they don't even look that different. So I'm sorry, I, I derailed you. I apologize. Already, your synopsis is like the movie Prometheus. Derailed <laughs> or interrupted by Tom? More <laughs> awesome, inscrutable. Right. Uh, All right, I'm sorry, Kelly Wan. Go ahead. I promise uh, I won't. I won't interrupt again. No, no, I want you to interrupt. 
okay. as often as possible because this one's so long that we may need like feel free to interrupt and like pawn and like answer questions so kelly Wan, is it kind of like lawrence of arabia where it maybe should have an intermission yeah it should just be <laughs> only intermissions we've already done the overture <laughs> Or would uh, Michael Fassbender enjoy listening to your Prometheopsis as much as he enjoys watching Lawrence of Arabia? But I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm, I think I, I, I want to hear your uh, synopsis. So, Brock, I was roll. trying to think just now if there was an intermission in Prometheus, like when the best one would be. And I would say right in the middle of the C-section. <laughs> <laughs> For an hour. And then you go outside. Who's to get? Anyway. But the uh, movie yeah. doesn't stop. You just get to go out for an hour and then come back. <laughs> right, right. You buy a ticket and then just leave and go to a Fifty million, even. Uh, so the alien, bald alien, he gets poisoned or poisons himself, depending on which film nerd you're sitting over with, and disintegrates, and his DNA falls into the water and turns into us. Intelligent design. WTF, I thought this was a highbrow science fiction movie rife with philosophical conundrums for me to watch baked in 3D. This waterfall shit better make sense later. Tom, you have any thoughts yet? I do not. I'm sorry. Go ahead. (laughs) Anyway, we're not told when or where that shit is, although it would have been useful to know. But whatever. Now we're told we're in Scotland in 2089, I guess, because now Tom's... Now the calendar's been invented. Maybe that's what he's trying to say. (laughs) At least till uh, it gets retconned next movie. A chick who's kind of like Kathleen Quinlan crossed with Shay from Game of Thrones, but slightly bigger boobed, but also by way of a young Dana Delaney, but the <laughs> eyes of that chick from Northern Exposure stars at a cave wall, stares at a cave wall. <laughs> God, there's so much more to go. It's never going to stop. I mean, she stares at a cave wall, that chick, and goes, hey, look, sweet abs, the ancients wrote some exposition here. And a guy scientist who's there, too, and somehow looks like Taylor Kitsch and Sam Worthington simultaneously. (laughs) (laughs) But minus the talent. You just made it all worth it, just now. (laughs) Oh, okay, good. See? Because we paid a lot of money for that fucking movie. I'm getting something out of it. This. You. Uh, That guy goes, did you date it? And she's all, I don't date rocks. I only marry them. And he's all, yeah, you told me that joke before. Every dig now for 12 years. I wasn't offended by it till we got married, but now it hurts my feelings. And she's all, by the way, I can't have kids unless they're aliens. And he's all, oh, yeah, duh. You think I hooked up with you just because we're both geologists? If I cared about personality, I'd have married Kenny over here. He points at a random boulder. She's all, hey, these ellipsoid drawings emerging from the butthole of that jaguar god drawing look vaguely like planets. I bet there's only one or two places in the universe that has five planets in this kind of crazy configuration. Let's find people who... (laughs) It's so close to what really happens. Let's find people who have a trillion dollars and get them to build us a spaceship and invent misanthropic robots that bleed milk and have them invent suspended animation, too, and have them fly us to this planet. There's five of them, but I have a good feeling about this fourth one. And then when we get there, let's act super retarded and without exception die arbitrarily. (laughs) And he's all, been thinking, I guess it's my own fault for setting you up every time by asking, did you date it? (laughs) Sorry, honey, what were you saying? Anyway, all that happens. They're on a ship called Prometheus. Oh, shit. The planet they're super excited about, they don't bother to name. 
The British chick dreams of exposition spoken by her dad once when she was a kid, because we always dream shit exactly as it happened. While Michael Fassbender, this robot who likes Lawrence of Arabia, watches his sleeping human crew's dreams in 3D, a luxury that probably costs them 900 billion of the trillion. She dreams what I guess is a real conversation she had with her dad, who I guess was a fucking biologist. Daddy, what's it like when you die? He's all, well, Muffin, some people call it heaven. Others call it paradise. There are no other theories whatsoever. Wow, Daddy, aren't those kind of the same thing, though? What's this heaven place like? What do those words mean? And he's all, it's what I choose to believe. And she's all, oh, Daddy, you sound like an awesome scientist. <laughs> The British chick and her science pals come out of hypercryo and puke a lot, even though they haven't eaten in a year. And they're woken up by Charlize Theron, who I guess doesn't need to hypersleep. Then they watch a 3D video of their patron, Old Biff from Back to the Future 2, <laughs> tell them and the rest of the crew. <laughs> right? What the fuck? <laughs> I, I, I was going to guess what the over-under was on that being a Billy Crystal joke, but that's, that's good. From uh, Mr. Saturday Night? From anything. From anything. Just the way you normally look. Okay. Uh, 61, 50. Uh, no, no math. That was Tom's thing. Uh, Consists of this Asian guy, the same guy without ethnicity from the battle shops, a Mohawk Irish dude whose character is that he's supposed to be funny, scared, grouchy, and the tallest black guy from The Wires, the captain, and Charlie's Theron's Biff's daughter, and acts all bitchy to help us forget she never does anything the whole movie. Old 3G Biff shambles forward in CD with his GCD3 cane and goes, I'm not entirely sure what my personality traits are, but I did all this for immortality. And cave paintings sound like as good a bet as any. Scientists, take it away. The douchebag geologist gets up and goes, Uh, actually, I think he might have misheard me say immorality during our phone conversation. But anyway, we're here now. The trillion's spent. It's probably for the best if I just show you uh, even more CG and say some shit. As you can see from all these swirly pixels, every culture on Earth was obsessed with five circles. Also, my wife can't have kids for some reason. She asked me not to say that. But again, we're here, a trillion spent. So, any questions? They're all asleep. They land on the unnamed planet that climate-wise looks nothing like the one from Alien and drive in dune buggies to their goal, a giant dome thing. Although they could have just parked the ship closer. They tramp around some caves and find some writing on a wall and some found footage CG of Tron extras <laughs> running like human extras from something invisible. It probably wasn't invisible. And a giant human head-shaped monolith that I guess the aliens made because they like to look at stone edifices of themselves while they make biological weapons. Same DNA indeed. Then they find some dead, bald aliens. The guy with the mohawks comically all, Fuck this, man. When I signed up to be put in suspended animation with antifreeze in my veins and travel across the universe to another planet, I didn't think anything dangerous would happen. Plus, dead extraterrestrials hold zero interest for me. I'm a scientist. My place is back on the ship, huddling in terror. Anybody else want to get killed off early? And the frizzy guy with glasses is all, Huddling on the ship? That was my major at Pepperdine. <laughs> That's my Irish accent and um, my racist accent. Those two characters take off to return to the dune buggies, but somehow miss them and get left behind to die, even though they left hours earlier. 
The rest go inside a secret room that was already open before that retarded conversation and find a bunch of eggs and worms and goo. They trample the worms and knock shit over and steal the goo. And since the storm's coming, they desecrate only one of the bald alien skulls. Since they're professional scholars with PhDs, only two of them recklessly endanger the rest of the crew getting inside the ship. Then they take the alien head to a random room, stick it in a cube, type some shit, and announce it has the same DNA as us. Which explains the baldness, pale skin, black eyes, and two-foot height difference. But unsolves other riddles. Since they've obviously learned all they can, they inject it with the unpredictable black goo. Its eyes open and its mouth says some shit to Fassbender, then it explodes and goo rains out of the brain cavity. Science, brah! But not enough of it for Charlize, so she bangs Fassbender around the hallways and asks him what the head said, because he can read the written language, so he knows how to speak it automatically. Plus, they only have one dialect. Fassbender calmly replies, try harder. So she goes, fine, and bangs him around some more and keeps asking him what it said a few more times, like, dude, where's my car? Is that really what you thought you said? (laughs) That's so awesome. That is so awesome. (laughs) In the movie, you thought that? I enjoy watching, I enjoy reappreciating Prometheus through Kelly's understanding of it, though. Oh, I love you so much, Kelly. See? <laughs> you thought that... that, is that... <laughs> I can write a summer blockbuster. <laughs> she wanted to know what Waylon said. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Don't edit that out of the synopsis, though, because we mean... like that part. <laughs> yeah, anyway. Well, now the whole movie makes sense to me. Anyway, uh, then they blow up ten more heads. till that joke <laughs> <laughs> So blowing up the alien head and leaving two of their crewmates to die in an alien tomb has made everybody understandably horny. The douchebag scientist gets drunk in a bar with the robot and plays billiards with some silver stress balls and tells the robot, Ha ha, you were made by douchebags like me to listen to douchebags like me going ha ha. And the robot, who's had alien bacteria on his fingertip for the last hour and I guess touched nothing in all that time and knows it's still good to go, goes, Hey, whatever your character's name is, would you want to turn yourself into an alien for a few hours and then die horribly, even if it meant not benefiting science in any way? And the dude's all, Totally! So the robot spikes his drink with goo. Hey, you put your finger in my drink, douchebag squawks. Then he smiles. You're all right, robot. You're all right. Meanwhile, the dumbasses who got left behind radio the ship and are all, Hey, can you come back and pick us up anytime soon? We have no food. We're on an alien planet surrounded by corpses and ghosts and biological weaponry. Plus, it's freezing. And the captain's all, Yeah, copy that. Also, there's some kind of movement coming your way. Probably a glitch there. I'm going to bed. Fuck this shit. (laughs) So the two dumbasses unroll their sleeping bags. And one of them's all, Wait, out of every room in this place, we're spending the night in the egg chamber, crawling with worms we left rather than enter before? I thought our characters were supposed to be chicken shits. Then a snake comes out of the water by his head and hisses and spits at him. He pokes its fangs playfully with his neck. Hey, honey, what's the matter? Huh? You like when I tease you, bitch? Hey, Charlie, I don't know if you should be doing that. Our characters are supposed to be scientists, remember? Ah, quit being such a pussy. Look, she likes it when I pee on it, just like your wife. Hey, come on, Charlie. I don't know if it was all pee that night. Hey, you and your I don't know ifs. Look, her head's flattening like a cobra's and sprouting nine-inch fangs. Who wants a mustache ride? <laughs> yep, suck it, Harry Dean Stanton. I'm the greatest Ridley Scott character in the history of a 3D. <laughs> Get her off my arm. <laughs> please, please. Just pretend I'm a competent voice actor. <laughs> oh, God. Dingus. 
I mean, cancel <laughs> listeners. <sighs> anyway, he's screeching all this into his radio, but Idris Elba yawns, switches it off in mid-screech, and goes to the ship's bar and plays a squeeze box that looks like it's from the 1820s, but he says belong to Stephen Stills. When the fuck were the 1820s? Charlize Theron asks him. Look, white girl, he says captainly. If you want to get laid, just say, I want to get laid. That's how shit's done in whatever year this is. So she's on my stateroom. Five minutes. Safe word, oh God, don't stop. Also, the robot has to watch us. Everything's double if you look in my eyes. Crying's encouraged and I'm a biter, but this is technically the Aliens franchise. She traipses off. I guess they fuck, but we don't get to see it because one of them's black and the other's South African, which I guess still doesn't play in Peoria. Also, unfortunately, we get to see the other couple fuck. The intercourse is a success in that despite her uterus issues, he still manages to inseminate her with an alien that takes 12 minutes of screen time to come to term. Although I thought in the real movies, they came out of eggs. He also finds a barbed alien tail living in his eye, but since it's nothing serious, he doesn't mention it to anybody, but suits up with his buddies. And he gets back in the dune buggy to go get the two dipshits they lost contact with only 12 hours ago out of the alien tomb. Tom, any thoughts? <laughs> Intermission. Who was South African? Isn't Charlie from... Yeah. Yeah, oh. from South Africa. When she talks normally, does she sound like a South African? Mm-hmm. I don't like it. Oh. All right. Uh, now Tom gets... You go. should watch this uh, show, Two Ferns, Tom. Well, she doesn't have a South African <laughs> yeah. accent in that. So isn't the, the chick from uh, Lethal Weapon 2, Patsy Clemson or whatever? Kenzie. Kenzie. Is isn't yeah. she South African? Yeah. Because she sounds South African. Is that where you don't like Charlize Theron and consider her a poor uh, Oscar-winning actress? She let's, doesn't sound enough. Let's table that because we are going to have us from Charlize Theron talk in just a little bit. But stand by. All right. So, so Kelly Wan, continue. So that was intermission. Now part two of the of Kelly the Wan synopsis for... Prometheops. Uh, <laughs> I love part two of five. They head into the egg chamber to find the dead bodies of their companions and all the canisters sizzling and bubbling with black goo and giant snakelins hissing at them from all the puddles and the giant head growing demon horns and its eyes glowing red. Guys, everything okay? They turn over the melted spacesuits and see skeletons and fused glass and teeth marks. Guys, says Red Shirt 4, come on, this isn't funny or scary or plausible. Suddenly, the sailor, the sailor Taylor Taylor Kitsch scientist falls over and starts bleeding from his handsomeness and growing tentacles from his milk toast slices. I'm okay, he tells the British chick. I feel great. His head explodes. His spacesuit turns into waffles. They go back in time. Brett Ratner turns purple. No, seriously, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> little writing for you. Uh, the rescue mission's an unqualified success in that they almost make it back to the ship before their dead crewmates come back as zombies and kill most of them, while the robot watches some CG that tells him in two seconds how to fly the ship and that these aliens made humanity by vomiting on a waterfall in accordance with Leviticus. He finds one of the waterfallers is still alive, but leaves him there and goes back to the ship because it's not the end of the movie yet, or the opsis. <laughs> The robot tells the British chick she's infected with an alien, and when she's all, uh, maybe we can take it out, he dopes her and removes her crucifix because that might be, quote, infected, and puts it in a test tube since the rest of her clothing and skin is probably also infected. He tells her his plans to put her in cryonic sleep so she can give birth to an alien on Earth, 
but without informing the captain or anyone else on board of these arrangements. But luckily, she kicks him in the face, and also luckily, everyone else is inexplicably absent and ignoring all alarms. So she staggers to the infirmary that they put on board because it's decades out of date and it was only a few more billion. The medbots all, greetings, crew, mem, er, how may I ask you? And she's all, hi, robot. Um, so another robot, but British, stuck his finger in my boyfriend's drink and impregnated me with an alien that weighs like 20 pounds. So God knows where the fuck my stomach is. Can you take it out of me? Very sorry, unable to comply. I am programmed only to abort male pregnancies and perform vasectomies. My programmer says I am a real ball. JK, what is insurance provider's fax number? Please press one. Uh, yeah, I just need a fucking alien taken out of me. Foreign body xenomorphicus hysterectomus? No problem. I will simply need authorization from your husband to perform. Look, I'm kind of in a hurry. See the teeth and blood here coming out of me? Knock, knock. Jesus, this hurts. Fine, who's there? Does not compute. Please unplug and kick me repeatedly. JK, have a seat, please. My anesthetic only works on male humans, but I will keep you distracted by coming up with names for your newborn. How about Medbot 4? <laughs> Eventually, she gets the thing to scoop the alien out of her with lasers a few seconds before it had eaten its way out, which would have been slightly more painful. Then its staples are shut, and she staggers down the hall in her underwear until she opens a door and finds old Biff sitting in a locker room with Charlize Theron and the robot. They look at her and away in disinterest. Instead of shooting the robot in the head for the shit with the alien he just pulled, she looks at old Biff and goes, My God, your makeup's so unconvincing, it's totally taken me out of the movie. Look, I know we're 0 for 2 so far, but let's go back to the tombs and see what else can go wrong. They drive back to the dome and realize at some point that it's a donut-shaped spaceship, which I guess the aliens park under domes. They go back to the control room and Fassbender wakes the alien up by opening his coffin. It gets up and stretches and farts. Wait, if he's fine, why didn't he just get out on his own, the British chick asks. But the robot lol shushes her with a finger to her lips, then smiles at the alien and goes, Hi, I'm a robot. My name's David, like the kid in AI. Speaking of awesome endings. Anyway... This is an old man, and these are some scientists from Earth. You created them, and they created me so I could tell you this. To show you how thankful we are, we made movies like Battleship and Chernobyl Diaries and beamed them out to the whole universe for alien races everywhere to appreciate your handiwork. You're welcome. The alien rolls its eyes and rips his head off and kicks it and stamps his body to a pulp. Then it kills everybody but Charlie's and the British chick and begins taking off in the ship for who the fuck knows, but the British chick somehow decides it's Earth. Old Biff and Fassbender's head stare at each other. Uh, says Biff. <laughs> what just happened? This is all starting to seem like the second worst trillion I ever spent. <laughs> and Fassbender's head's all. Even though I'll be the one flying around the universe in the sequel and you'll be dead in a couple seconds, have a great journey. Biff's dead. Idris Elba radios the British chicken goes, hey, how'd it go? By the way, I just want to apologize if I've been a dick before. You guys are scientists. You know what you're doing. My job was just to get you here, leave you erudite types in charge of making the smart calls communication-wise, research-wise. And she's all, uh, without taking any precautions and after it had already killed a bunch of us, we just woke up an alien who has tons of bioweapons. So now we need you to ram your ship into it <laughs> and hope that somehow solves all our problems and also doesn't mangle continuity too much with the movie made in 1979. And he's all cool. So Idris Elba tells him the last two other guys alive. Eh, fucking Prometheus. 
All right, guys, I'm going to ram this way bigger alien donut ship that's composed of alloys we know nothing of. Assume that's enough to crash it and that nothing else stupid happens after I'm dead. You guys should bail, though. You were barely in the movie at all. No one's going to give a shit if you die. And the alien dude's all, sir, it's been an honor. But then the CGs collide. The two women's try to outrun a sliding donut the size of Phoenix, but it crushes the bitchier of them by deus ex machina. At least that's what I choose to believe. The British chick finds Fassbender's head and goes, I want to ask these bald guys who just killed everybody, why? Fassbender's head's all, wait, we just had the black dude sacrifice himself and his ship to keep anything from leaving this world, and now you want to leave this world. What if they torture Earth's location out of you? Seems to me you're being a little retarded. And she's all, that's because I'm a human being and you're a robot. Now, even though you killed my husband and tried to kill me and put an alien fetus in me, I'm very sorry that I'm zipping your head up in this duffel bag. <laughs> and he's all, guess it can't be Gina Carano's thighs every movie. <laughs> da 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 ba da oh. Oh. I know. Too much. Right. Too much, all not right. enough. All right, okay, back to the movie now. Now that, that shit's out of our lives. Uh, all right. Well, I didn't hear the end. Is there a the end, Kelly Wand? The end, Kelly Wand. Uh, and shouldn't it have a question mark like the end of the thing? It had a question mark shaped like the alien body that's doing its preening at the end of this movie, playing on our affections for things from 30 years ago, like every movie now. Uh, does anyone on this podcast have anything positive to say about this movie because I do not. I've heard people say, oh, it looked awesome. I, I'm, I, I can't even go there. I yeah, that's shit writing. Did, did it look awesome, though? Like, did you like some of the production design? Did you enjoy any mm. of the visuals? Somebody say something nice, because I can't rise to that occasion, I'm afraid. Passbender's all right. Okay, okay. I like him. But, I mean, to me, it's all about writing, and it's just not... I'm tired... This, I never trust Damon Lindelof again. I'm tired of this fucking faith versus science show. I think it's so fucking boring and pointless, and so played to death on Lost, and uh, he's already failed us once. I'm tired of these movies where you don't find out shit, and it's just you're supposed to figure it out or find out in three more years. Of but, Kelly Wand, you do find out what the space jockey was. Isn't that important to you? No, we didn't find out anything about him. What do we know about him? He looks like Vader without the mask. I mean, what she's supposed to look like. Is that even the same dude? Well, first of all, I think no, you are... are yeah, it's not even the same planet. It's like, not this the was... same planet. This is not LV-246. You know this what? I don't LV even care. <laughs> <laughs> I truly see, don't care. So first of all, Kelly One, this is... Yeah, this is LV... It's not LV-426, which alien geeks would know. They And I, I think when they early on point out that this is, I think, LV, is it 221 or something like that, like that's their nod to tell alien geeks like us, hey, this isn't, you know, that... It's in the same planet. star system? That doesn't even matter. I, I think that whole thing is they're, they're wanting to tell us alien dorks this is not the same planet. Uh, but I, I think what, what I hate about the writing is it's, it's answering questions, and I think it does answer plenty of questions, but in the tradition mm -hmm. of Lost, it's asking more questions than it answers. It's answering questions that nobody cares about that do right. not need to be answered. Nobody needs to know. H.R. Giger, the space jockey, is a fantastic bit of, of haunting artwork from H.R. Giger that Ridley Scott used in Alien, we don't need to know what's underneath it, what it's doing, whether that's a piloting chair or a gun or an observatory. or We don't need to know any of that because it doesn't matter because what mattered was that it looked awesome as a piece of mysterious 
unexplained production design from from the brilliant mind of a great artist, H.R. Giger, to for Ridley Scott and Damon Lindelof and this idiot John Spates to assume that the audience that this is what the audience cares about that this is an answer that it, they want to bring in a alien prequel it's just it's idiotic and good lord what so I feel it does answer questions just stupid ones that <clears throat> removes mystery where mystery should be left to linger that was what was beautiful about the space jockey is it had little bits of familiar but we didn't know what it was i don't care i don't i didn't i never wanted that answered you know that was the beauty of cinema back then is it could do really cool mysterious things you know what was making the noise in the attic in the exorcist we don't know it's not answered it doesn't matter and if william friedkin were to go and do an exorcist sequel that answered that right now i would think he was an idiot and that he didn't understand prequel exactly i would think he was an idiot and that he didn't understand what made his movie good and that's how i feel about ridley scott right now i'm like you idiot you don't understand what made alien so good and certainly damon lindelof doesn't and this newcomer john spates who whose only other piece of work is is uh, the darkest hour a horrible horrible crappy alien invasion movie uh these guys don't know what made alien good and that's so abundantly clear watching this piece of junk um so you know what i i wanted to give you guys a chance to say nice things so uh, Michael Fassbender was good. Uh, you're, you're with him there. Uh, Dingus, c- can you say anything nice about uh, Prometheus? The guy or the movie? <laughs> <laughs> I like the I, guy. I, nothing good. I uh, hmm. fuck this thing. I didn't. I didn't see it in 3D. Maybe if I had seen it in 3D, I would love it. It was shot in 3D. I think so. To its, I don't know. I to its, and I'm going to put a question mark after this credit. Uh, it, it wasn't one of those post-production 3D things. Like, they actually used 3D cameras. So, you know what? Maybe it did look good in 3D. I liked the 3D. But I can't ah. ignore... I mean, 3D doesn't disguise shitty writing. It does not. That is correct. It reminds well, you of it. So, Kelly Wan, did you think... Because I, I really didn't think it looked good at all. I thought, compared to the... The, the production, you know, the, the way that the ship looked in Alien versus the way that the Alien ship looked, you know, that, right. that juxtaposition in the first oh, totally. Alien movie was brilliant. Then the way that, uh, was it John Dykstra? Who did the visual? Oh, Stan Winston? No, who did the visual effect for Aliens? Actually, wasn't that Sid Mead? Who did all the uh, marine stuff? At, at any rate, the previous movies had great hardware. They had a great sort of visual look to them. The first movie's contrast between the alien stuff and the Nostromo and the way you never really saw what the Nostromo looked like. The first two movies were brilliant visually. This thing looked like some cheap made... This thing looked like Falling Skies. You know, some cheap made-for-TV or that uh, that Earth thing. This looked like something cheap made-for-TV. The stupid buggies and the little ATVs and the Prometheus itself. I, 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 what, who thinks this looks good? Uh, well, and here's, here's something... Here's something I'll say uh, about it that 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 enabled me to look kindly upon the visuals, um, is that because it's not because they I don't know when they jumped the shark or switched streams or whatever and decided this wasn't going to be a prequel. Um, I kind of started to watch it under Tom rules about uh, original material. And because because if you if you watch the science of it, it none of it makes any sense mm-hmm. coming before Alien. That, and, you know the the fact that David can do this neural pixelated dream voyeurism. Right. There's none of, none of that makes any sense if you're 
if you unless you retcon everything. Uh, unless you just look at this as a standalone movie and you decide I'm not going to bother like Tom, like you do, Tom, mm-hmm. which which I like with 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 looking at that other stuff as source material. Don't don't even bother with the source material. Um, so so some of that works, doesn't it? Well, I wouldn't say so. I think Dingus, when I'm talking about it, I tend to think more in terms of how a book informs the script for a movie and not necessarily how movies fit together. Because Ah, while I agree you could divorce this from its source material, that's clearly not what the filmmakers are doing. They want they put in very clear references to the other movies. Uh, They they draw a lot of what's going on. I think you're supposed to care about how and whether it fits in with the other movies. Um, and I think they do a terrible job of it. And and as somebody who loves the other movies, it's hard for me to divorce myself from what a terrible job they've done with that stuff. Um, you, you know, there's so many nods to the other movies from the way that the cameras are capturing footage from, from the away team and the base. Uh, even I, when I watch Michael... <laughs> David, we are leaving. Right, exactly. Lines like that. Or Michael spinning the basketball and throwing it through the hoop. I think of the scene with Ripley and is it the fourth Alien movie? Like, I, there's so many things. I was like, okay, it's a nod to us Alien fans. Fair enough. So, so that when they screw up something as basic as the avionics, for instance, the avionics on the Nostromo and the Sulaco, you know, these were movies made in what, 79 and 82, 83, whatever. 86. <laughs> wasn't even close. But uh, these were movies where the avionics on those ships were informed by that time period. You know, that's what we thought that the future would look like back then. This movie scraps that. You, you know, if they were doing an original movie, that's fine. But, but they have so many nods to Alien and Aliens, Alien 3, Alien 4, that when they make the avionics in this movie full of this crappy minority report gesture stuff yeah. and holographic displays and, uh, you know, this sort of like glass... Apple-looking, sleek stuff that wouldn't look out of place in the Star Trek movie. I'm like, I'm like, screw you guys. You know, this is not what technology looks like in the future that you're setting this movie. At least not the way that I saw it, and certainly not the way the other movies were shot. Um, and none of it's story-related. None of all the story-related stuff. I mean, for me, it's also it's a little insulting that what this all comes down to. And Kelly Wand, you're absolutely right about the bad writing. That's the most insulting part is how bad the writing is. Mm-hmm. But what I find a little insulting is that what this all comes down to, what this script is telling us, is that everything that happens in the other movies is because a dude stuck his finger in another dude's drink. <laughs> that in- infected the Tom, guy. That's human history. <laughs> but that infected the guy who had sex with Numi Rapazzi, who who gave birth to the alien, Forgot who to then infected it. the alien, who gave birth to the first xenomorph. Like th- that <laughs> stupid. And and what it's bothers me, what bothers me most about that is not the absurdity of it, but that this movie does not care enough about its characters to ever tell me why the fuck David did that. What was he doing? On whose behalf was he acting? Was this something he did on his own? Was this something that Waylon wanted him to do? And if it's something he did on his own, why are we exploring these themes about a, a replicant who wants to be a human being when we've already established what replicants can and can't do? The tweak from Alien, where the malfunctioning replicant is like a Hal, you know, Ian Holmes replicant, to Bishop, Lance Henriksen and Aliens, where oh, he's sorry, actually replicant. a... a uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, artificial person. What are they... Not robot. Don't, isn't there a word for him? Skin job. 
I guess so, artificial persons. But you're right, Dingus. The replicate thing. Androids. Okay, the replicate thing is from Blade Runner. So what this is, is it's these guys introducing these Blade Runner themes and these AI themes. They lack the Uh, craft to explore. They lack the craft, and they're doing it in the wrong freaking universe. Because just like we know what the avionics look like in Alien and Aliens, we know what the deal is with these artificial persons. They're not human beings. You know, they're programmed things that break and they get fixed. So why on earth is David doing this trick with the finger, which stylistically like that, I guess that looked kind of cool, the way that Michael Fassbender kept holding his finger out. It's one of those audience things where the audience knows that finger's infected, but nobody in the room does except and him. And what's going to happen, and it's so telegraphed. And but isn't it, isn't it, so that's the genesis of all the Alien movies. Why was he doing that? Am I missing something? Like, isn't It'll be this explained movie... three movies from now by Damon Lindelof. I guess so. I mean, and that's, that's where... This whole Lost thing just right. drives me batty. You take one of the writers from Lost, you take Drew Goddard, and you you have him work with Joss Whedon to do a script, and you have him do a self-contained movie like Cabin in the Woods. It's not character-driven, but it's well-written, it's, it's concept-driven, and it's good. It's self-contained, it's good stuff. Uh, Drew Goddard knows how to direct it. He worked well with Joss Whedon. They have this great appreciation of the genre that they're drawing from. But you get this Damon Lindelof Yahoo, you get Ridley Scott, who I am convinced would not know a good movie if you strapped him in one of those clockwork orange chairs and forced him to watch it. Ridley Scott, I mean, this is this just, just incompetent stuff. None of these guys knew what they were doing. Why won't you tell me why Michael did that with the alien goo? Um, the movie because, doesn't because care. Because he can. That's why. Because he can. <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. Uh and why did they? I, I don't know. I just I, I just loathe this thing. So okay. So any other good things to say about the movie? I'll, I'll try to I'll try to. It's let a them bummer stop. too because it's like it's getting good enough reviews and making enough money to go see. We can just exploit their nostalgia further. No, this is and jerk people around more. This is not going to take off. There will not be another one of these. I, I think it's going to have a huge second weekend drop off. Uh, I think we're well, done. Really? Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I think. Don't know. There's nothing there's, next week that'll... I don't know, Madagascar was more interesting to people than this. <laughs> well, that, that's an issue, too, with like the R rating. Uh, no, I think this really? will have a huge drop-off. Well, Madagascar, there also hasn't been... like Madagascar, there hasn't been like a summer family movie for kids. Maybe the Avengers. But... Every movie's for kids. They get tons of... They get every fucking weekend already. Wait a minute, I want Prometheus making money. That's my <laughs> argument. I do, I do think Prometheus is not going to make money. I think it's going to be disappointing. The marketing for this was brilliant, by the way. Like yeah, I've gone back and watched some of the trailers, and they did that little fake TED Talk thing. And uh, like I think this is I, I think a lot of why this movie isn't tanking harder is because of the marketing. Uh, like I, th- I think they did a great job with. That. I thought those random sequences were going to be linked by <laughs> story and uh, <laughs> fucking. It is a great trailer. It's a great trailer, and as I've said before, I love the fact that they use that weird siren effect from the original Alien trailer, and I love seeing the letters come up on screen in the same fashion as Alien, you know, with like one line at a time bleeding in. Um, that makeup looked okay to Ridley Scott. I don't, I don't know what they were thinking. Oh, good God. Why the fuck did they do that? I don't know. Other than really... the marketing, why the hell did we have to sit through that ridiculous age makeup? What the hell? I mean, I, I, Peter Hyams did it better in 2010. 
Why, why didn't you sit through Guy Pierce? Why do you do? Nobody's fooled. So either we're sitting there wondering, oh, it's a spoiler, and he's going to get youngified at the end of the movie, or maybe it's it's Michael Fassbender playing. Otherwise, I'm sitting there going, who's that? Who's that? Who's that? Yeah. Who's that? Why are you doing that? This is the dingus I want on my jury when I'm up for murder. By the way, <laughs> the other guys fall asleep. On. Oh, Jesus. I mean, I mean, the makeup is the least of the problems. I'm so fucking pissed at the writing of this. But that makeup, that makeup decision, why? Just so we can have that stupid TED talk? Really? You didn't think that was profound? Yeah, profound in the mind of Ridley Scott. That's what profundity is to him. When he said, uh, like, three uh, he, years ago, he, would, he finds creation in a marshmallow. What is his? Oh God! What? He's Wait, just what's an that? idiot. I mean, been a really, that the, he he thinks marshmallows are profound. That's what I'm trying to say. Ridley oh. Scott, I, he doesn't know why any of his movies are good. I'm convinced of that. Right. Uh, right. I, I watched Alien this week. It's just su- such an example of streamlined economical storytelling that is so elegant. And then you watch this, and it's so much crap. Dingus, didn't you try to watch Kingdom of Heaven? How'd that work out for you? Oh, good God. Oh. Yes, yeah, I tried. Has Ridley Scott done That's anything? That's Orlando Bloom's fault. No, it's anything? not. It's his fault for cast. I mean, Orlando Bloom, Martin Sokus. I don't know why so many friends of mine said that the that the director's cut was worth watching because mm-hmm. it is. I've watched two hours of the three and a half hours of it, and it's it's just horrible. The guy he cannot direct action. I mean, watch that storm sequence in Prometheus when the storm comes. <laughs> What the hell is going on with that silicate storm? <laughs> that was that was so random. And who go get is go get the head? And, yeah. Get the head. I don't know. I'm, there's a guy on a cable. Who's on the cable? I don't know who's on the cable. Okay, uh, now floating around. <laughs> it, none of it matters, and you don't know what the fuck is going on. They had to get the head back so they could explode it. And okay, I will. Say, I I do have one nice thing to say. Oh, good. Uh, while uh, Ridley Scott, like, like I think someone told Ridley Scott to, that this could be like his 2001. So during those early scenes where, where uh, or, uh, David is walking around the ship um, while everybody's asleep, like I was like, okay, this is supposed to be his 2001. I whatever. I, I, like I was pretty unengaged even at that point. <laughs> but I did love the touch where it shows Michael, Michael and, and the fact that he loved. Uh, Lawrence of Arabia. I was like, well, are you really going to do anything with that? And they didn't. No. I think they Fire. only, they only picked that because uh, Michael Fassbender does look a, li- a bit like Peter O'Toole. Um, uh. he, like, he should have been watching Pinocchio. This whole thing about, you know, the android that wanted to be human. If they, if, if he really wanted to, to make some sort of thematic tie-in, he would have loved Pinocchio. But I did love the one little shot where you see him uh, dyeing his roofs. Like, I love that he was putting that in his hair, that the idea that an android could be vain like that and uh, could have to dye his hair, I thought was a cute touch. That was great until the moment where he quotes the movie, and then he turns to the crew member and goes, that's from a film I like. Oh, God. (laughs) Really? You're going to explain the joke to us? Thanks, Ridley. Well, we also have to have explained to us who Stephen Stills is by having Idris Elba sing, you know, if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. That was another like, one. Like Idris Elba would love that song. <laughs> Future. This is space Idris Elba, I think. Right. <laughs> and there's there's nothing that's happened since between now and 2093 that would suggest any other music or another Holocaust or any other cultural references that might just happen. 
That's right. It's like in the Star Trek one where he had the 60s car. Uh, let's talk about the cast. Um, who came out of this the least embarrassed? Uh, the alien. <laughs> the CG alien. He, did, he acquitted himself pretty cool, I thought. And that I have such a hard time with this question because there is no emotional core to this movie, and there are no there are no relationships that matter whatsoever. There's not a single character I care about. In fact, the three guys who suicide themselves at the end are the only characters I care about, and I really don't because I don't know them. Um, there, I would kept saying, "God, I miss Bill Paxton." I mean, there's there's nobody to care about. And, I mean. Genghis- Dingus, Julie Theron was his daughter. You see? You see? Do you get it? Oh. That's shocking. Yeah. That's awesome. That changes everything. Did nobody watch the first two movies? I mean, the two women in this have daddy issues, and one of them is with a douche. I mean, come on. I've only seen the third and the fourth Alien movies. <laughs> right. That would be awesome. I don't, I don't know. Everything I, I know is I, based on this. I, I think even Michael Fassbender, who I love, is just yeah. playing the standard robot. So yeah. I, I'm going to lay this all... I, I mean, I blame George Lucas for doing prequels, and I blame him for making Ridley Scott into a terrible director for actors. I don't know what to do, because I love Michael Fassbender, but he's just doing a standard robot. Is there anybody to like in this? I could have li- like I like... Granted that everyone has crap to work with, uh, I just like watching Charlize Theron work so much. Uh, you know, we'll talk next week about the Snow White movie, and she is so much fun in that. So even you already I, saw it, yeah, yeah. So yeah. even even I could kind of watch her and think, yeah, she's like cool as the the bitchy commander type chick, and she looks good in that spandex suit. And isn't that a cool like mohair silver suit she's wearing? And oh, she's doing push-ups in her little sleep underwear and. So I kind of, I guess, you know, I like watching Charlize Theron. She's fascinating to me. But otherwise, like, like Dingus, you said her, her name before. What's the name of the, the Icelandic, the Swedish chick uh, who was the lead? Numi? Rapos. Rapos, okay. She was, I mean, what a horrible choice for a lead actress, I thought. And I don't, I kind of feel bad about saying that. I didn't care for the Dragon Tattoo movies, but... I seem to recall the one that I saw. She was kind of pretty cool as Lizbeth. But I, if I didn't know those movies, like I would watch this and think, who the heck is this lead actress, and why did he cast her? Like There was nothing there, I thought. Plus, an alien, no one knew who Sigourney Weaver was, so there yeah. was uh, an element of surprise. Like You didn't know who it was going to be. Yeah, so yeah. Go, all right, it's Bruno. She's in all the movies. And I love I loved a couple of the smaller actors, like not in this movie, but there's a, 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 a woman named Kate Dickey who's amazing in Red Road in a cool horror movie called Outcast. Uh, and there's a, an actor named Sean Harris who plays the guy with the mohawk who is just fantastic in the Red, uh, the Red Writing series, that BBC thing. He's in a really cool horror movie called uh, Isolation. I love that guy. Um, but they, you know, they didn't give them anything to do in this movie. That's not the actor's fault. No, no, not at all. Well, that's the, that's the thing. There's just no relationships that I care about. Yeah. There's no payoff like um, Vasquez and... What's his name? The Drake. douchebag. Oh, Gorman. Yeah, they, you always were an asshole, Gorman. Gorman. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, so they're, they're painting that, that geologist dude to be the douche 
but there's no payoff for that. There's right. no relationship that happens. And there, there's not even anything as good as Yafet Koto and Harry Dean Stanton. In no. there's, there's no relationship. And the core relationship of this movie, which is supposed to be the two scientists, the, the, the guy scientist is such a dick. I couldn't care less if he dies, and I'm is pissed off at her be? for being with him. Dingus, you know, you missed so much of this, but this is so clearly the hand of someone who worked on Lost. I mean, this is exactly the same problem that happened in Lost. Lost had horrible writing. It had no consistent character motivation. None of the relationships mattered except for whatever week-to-week drama they wanted to try to cram into an episode. Uh, This is just such a, a product of a successful TV show cramming its way into a movie franchise. Uh, with the same problems from the TV show, which is now the f- the future of movies. This is how this is why everything sucks now. You say that uh, it's crazy because when you watch Alien, when Ridley Scott, I'm sorry, when um, when oh god, what's Dan her O'Ban- name? Ripley. Dan when O'Ban- Ripley, when Ripley closes the hatch, <laughs> and not Denovan, Ripley closes the hatch, and uh, Tom Skerritt can't leave. And they turn around and they look at each other. There's clearly a yeah. history there. Yeah. There's, and that's there's all you so need. Much, it's it's so rich. And there is no history with any of these relationships. But don't be so down on movies, Kelly Wan. This is just a crappy, crappy movie. It's a uh, summer movie. It's a summer movie, but we had the Avengers this summer. I think you guys are really going to be, with, with limitations, like pleased with some things in the Snow White movie. You know, we had Moonrise Kingdom this summer. Uh, you know, movies, a lot of movies suck. We know that. This is one of them. <laughs> but yeah, but this so is supposed to be... No, no, this is supposed so, so, to be the also, new Alien. Also, Kelly Wand, I, I do believe, as I've said before, that Cabin in the Woods was, was partly good because that's what Drew Goddard was doing in Lost, and he was able to successfully put a lot of that stuff into a movie. Um, like I, I, I'm as down as the next guy on on how awful Prometheus is, but but I think that it doesn't have to be that way, and there are examples where it hasn't been that way. We're um, halfway through the year, and you just named the only two movies. That well, I, I disagree. Different. I think there there have been a number of movies we've really really liked. Yeah. Um, and and I'm not down on movies altogether. I'm just pissed off that that this movie pretends to create some sort of mythology, and it's just a bunch of crap. You know, I think. But, what, go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. Well, I think what they're doing, I mean, as awful as it is, I mean, it seems to me, once this was over, I sort of was like, okay, I feel like I just got forced to sit through the origin story for a string of movies where a Swedish chick flies around the galaxy with Michael Fassbender's head in her purse. (laughs) That's what... Yeah, that's that's a cliffhanger. And that's what I think they... That's how I'm imagining David Lindelof sold this crap to Ridley Scott, because that's clear. That's what happened here, is Ridley Scott had wanted to do a follow-up to Alien. It got put on the back burner for the the Alien vs. Predator franchise. Uh, Finally, David Lindelof came to him with this script, this idea. Or no, no, David... uh, Spates. Spates. John Spates. John Spates came to him with this idea, and this is just some kid who'd never really worked before. His Darkest Hour movie was was awful. So Spates brought him this idea. Ridley Scott was like, yeah, hire this kid. This guy does a script. They bring in Damon Lindelof. Hey, this guy had this great TV series lost. They hired him to work on Spates' script. This is the script we got that Ridley Scott shot. Uh, and I really do feel Ridley Scott is is lost to us for all intents and purposes. I don't based on, but I kind of thought maybe if he went back to material he knew. I mean, yeah, Hannibal is awful, Robin Hood is awful, but I like Hannibal. If he went back to material that he knew. There might still be, like, he might still be able to connect to it and create something cool. But even above and beyond the awful writing, I just saw no good direction in, in this. I, I just there, there was nothing here. So 
like I said, I, I'm just convinced that Ridley Scott is just lost to us. What was this. his last great movie? I liked Black Hawk Down. Elma and Louise. Made, Black Hawk Down was Black really, Hawk Down is the last good thing uh, he did. Yeah. And, and but, uh, I... I Oh, go ahead. Well, I don't know. I would like to do some sort of archaeological dig to find out who worked with him on his good movies, because that person, whoever that is, Jerry is Kurtz. responsible for them. Because if you listen to him talk about his movies, he has no fucking clue <laughs> what it's good about yeah, them. Yeah, he he's going to do a Monopoly movie. He he it's talks a- out of his ass, and yeah. even when he talks about this movie, he's just spouting. I, I think he lives in a fantasy world, and somebody else was directing these movies. I don't know who it was, but it, maybe it was the engineers. <laughs> Wait, I don't understand. It seems like both of your things don't go together. Like he's the he's the retarded one, so obviously he directed the retarded movie. Not no, I think he's a, he has a a, a a flotilla of retards. He's got like worms springing out of his imagination, and somebody right. else's DNA harnesses them. He's the I, Prometheus, and he's giving fire. No, he might be Epimetheus. I don't know who he is, but it, he he's not in charge of the spigot. He's just spouting. <laughs> did you hear that, Tom? I did. I'm trying to fit that that's in. Better, that's way better dialogue than anything for me. Today. And, one, two, uh, three, uh, not only you and me, got 180 degrees and I'm caught in between. Counting one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, those lines should be in Prometheus. I agree. You guys hardly ever. Thank you for telling me. I talk like Damon Lindelof. <laughs> you know, I used to feel resentful that we never got to see the aliens come to Earth because they would always we can't let them get to Earth and they blow shit up. They did get to Earth. What are you talking about? One That's of the AVP movies. Like, right, right. Oh, finally get there. Yeah, yeah. And but now I realize if, if they did get to Earth, it would just be Battle LA or fucking Battleship. It's nothing to look forward to. Never look forward to You know to what? It. I will. I didn't hate the one where they came to Earth. What? Wait, what? Who? What? 25? The one where they come to Earth and they invade the little town and it's going to get nuked. Was that AVP 2, I think? Dude, what are you fucking... That was the one. No, in Aliens vs. Predator 2, they come to Earth. Requiem. The aliens get here. A predator ship gets here. There's, a like, a fight in a hospital. Like, Stop. which If there's a predator in it, it's not an alien movie. I'm not going to watch it. Well, I think 20th Century Fox differs. It's about, th- isn't differ. that movie about high schoolers trying to get laid and then a predator? There's, there's some of those in there, but it's not. <laughs> you know what? You got me, Kelly One. You are right. But I didn't hate that movie. I do stand by that. I didn't hate You're that weird. one. I am weird, yes. It's a good I point. like the pyramid. The pyramid one was fine. Yeah, well, that was... Uh, eh. You know who else likes that one? James Cameron, your other boyfriend. Yep. <laughs> we it? saw that together. Oh, God. You know what? Let's do a three-by-three. Three. Let's cleanse yeah. our palates. Let's do a three-by-three three about awesome scenes about or set in nighttime. What do you guys think of that? I think I sucked. Well, you know what? You get to go first because you have next week's three-by-three. Three. So what do you have, Kelly Wand, for your number three choice of an awesome scene, at uh, an awesome nighttime scene. Mine are all horror movies, which I think is kind of boring. You know what? That's it's hard to not. I mean, horror movies. Yeah. They're kind of yeah. Fair enough. But I knew you would go. Oh yeah. Well, I found I picked movies that take place in the day that are night. <laughs> <laughs> you know how proud I, you are. I did only Truffaut movies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, maybe I posted I this. This is part of my thesis at Harvard Divinity School. When well, I played, we'll yes. see. I'm I'm in, I'm going third, so we'll see what little tricky things I came up with. You have to admit that is how you talk. 
like verbally, I do. Sometimes, yes, that's yeah. that was a good uh, impression of, of I'm a better actor than speech. You. That's true. Better that, writer. That, that is how he talks verbally. Uh, and I think we are going to have some overlap on this list. If, the, if one of them, if my number one isn't one that you guys get to before me, I will be deeply, deeply disappointed in both of you. Hmm. See, see what I did? I've just thrown down a gauntlet. Kelly Wand, can you pick up that gauntlet with your number three? My number three is the movie Paranormal Activity. Although I feel bad um, saying anything nice about Oren Pelly anymore, but I really like how um, I'm an insomniac, and it's occurred to me that I've lived for like decades thinking that it's naive of us that we all go into a coma at the same time for like eight hours and we don't place guards. (laughs) (laughs) Some of us maybe do. Yeah. You don't. Yeah. (laughs) Well, like a whole like squad of them, like not fucking robots because they'll fucking try to infect you with alien babies and dogs to sleep too. You own cats. Yeah, exactly. That's what they're there for. Kelly Wand, I will say uh, thank you for picking up the gauntlet with your number three choice. That was my number one pick. I knew it would be. Well, it is a great, it's great for that, though. It's a, it taps into our universal fear of uh, cameras. So why is, why is this a great night scene? Yeah, now, Kelly Wand, did you, did you have a, a particular one that you picked, or just in general, or, or how, did you, how, how, would you, how would you articulate this? I, I thought I already did that. <laughs> so just in general paranormal activity not in specific the scene where it's things. night and then um the clock goes forward <laughs> that was the good that was the scene i that sticks out for me the one where she's standing over the bed or a different oh. one where the clock goes forward now the first one when the keys <laughs> so that's what i picked because it does introduce the whole Format for like how nighttime is going to work. Uh, and, so you and, agree with me on the keys? Oh no, I definitely agree with you because it's setting the the stage. I mean, it, it's saying it's letting you know. You know, you see all the stuff during the daytime, and it's letting you know. Okay, when I'm showing you the nighttime stuff, and the characters are asleep, and it's dark, and you can't see what's down that hallway weird things are going to happen. You know, the nighttime is when you're not safe as the audience. The characters aren't safe. Um, you, you know, it really does represent sleep, like you mentioned, as this period of vulnerability. Uh, you know, th- there's this idea that human activity has left the world. You know, humans are inactive, and now something else entirely is stepping in. Uh, and that something else could be down that dark, unlit hallway. Uh, so I love that. And I also love about paranormal activity is once it sets this um, this feeling of, and this is a crucial part of movies, by the way, uh, tension and release. Um, the mm. seeing this in a packed movie theater as we did to, to, to hear the audience and to sort of feel the audience tap into that. Like when you get the title card, mm. you know, it's night and you feel the audience get uneasy. Like the, the window for paranormal activities, unfortunately kind of closed because everybody knows what it's done. It's been ripped off so often. Uh, but catfish not, has tainted it. A lot of movies have tainted it. I mean, there's so many crappy paranormal activity ripoffs. Um, but when that first came out, seeing it in a crowded theater, the communal experience of people experiencing that tension and release of its day-night cycle was really something special. Um, I don't think everyone got that either. Like, I know people who don't think that movie's scary at all because they think it's just boring and slow and nothing's happening. But to me, that's what makes it work is because the, the, it's hard to think back that far, but... 
the rhythms in that movie are really weird, and you never yeah. know what the lead-in time is going to be. So you're never sure what you're supposed to be looking at or how long you're supposed to be looking at something. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And then, like you said, they broke it themselves, and now it'll never be good again. Like everything. What's wonderful about it is that if you did what Tom just suggested, uh, and you did see it in that in the theater and had that communal experience, for me at least, there's some sort of grandfather clause or infection that happens so that every time I watch it, it still works. How often do you watch it? I've watched it many times because it, it's cropped up on yeah. I, I really like watching that movie. I, I love the way it's edited. I love the sound design. Uh, I love the, the two actors. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, even the, the doctor. I love that doctor guy. I really love the way that movie's put together. And when I put it in, uh, it works for me every time. I, I, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just because I'm a sucker for scary movies. But, uh, but because, I think because I watched it that first time and it had such an effect on me, it works for me. It works for me every time and it freaks me out. That's how, uh, that movie Angel is for me. Angel? Yeah, where she's like off the at night. No, no. Uh, oh, Hollywood Hooker by Day. Yeah, Kelly Wand. High school, honor school, student by night. Uh, Dingus, this wasn't one of your three picks? No, I no, I actually uh, I I decided to avoid all horror movies. Aha! Well, uh, interesting, sneaky. Well, what's your number three then? So all your three, none of them horror movies. Uh, why did you do that, Dingus? I. Uh, it's cool that it's cool that you guys did. I just thought that horror movies and night would be too easy. And sure. when you were talking about last week, when you were talking about your idea, what I really started thinking about was lighting and how uh, how directors and cinematographers light night scenes and how that works mm-hmm. and and which ones are effective and which ones aren't. And so the night scenes I watched this week, because you, you talked about a couple of things. You, you referenced, and I hope you'll bring it up, uh, seeing one that just did it totally horribly. And, um, and then you talked about Chernobyl Diaries where you couldn't see anything. And, uh, and so I watched a lot of movies or a lot of scenes with that in mind and really paid attention to the lighting of nighttime scenes. And so I just decided to avoid horror movies. All right, good. What's your number three? And do you have a line you can maybe give us from the movie? I do. Here's the line. We must stop. Little Blackie is played out. Whoa, 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 whoa. I'm going to... That's... I know what it is. Little Blackie is played out. I don't... Something... Some Al Jolson thing where he's in blackface? Uh, Tom, that's racist. Well, Dingus is the one that said it. Little Blackie is played out. What? I don't know what that is. I haven't seen it, whatever it is. True Grid, I think. Yeah. Oh, Dingus. That's a good point. You know what? You could say that name. You could name your horse that back in the 18 nurseries. (laughs) <laughs> 18 nurseries. I don't know what you're with. 18 nurseries. You can take the spigot out of the man, but you can't take the black All right, so Diggis, what's the scene? We all we know because we've seen it, but tell folks, what's the scene, the nighttime scene in True Grit? All right, well, th- this is where Rooster uh, Cogburn is. Uh... <laughs> I mean... That's well, he had to be. I think he was worried it was going to sound like Cockburn if he just said well, it. Why like, Dingus? Quickly. He said it weird. <laughs> Dingus was fucking with us. He's trolling us. Is, is racing to get Maddie, who's been bitten by a snake, uh, a poisonous snake, a rattlesnake, uh, to safety, and and he's riding her horse, um, 
across the night and across the plains to get her there. And I'm I'm so aware and and you know, Tom, when you introduced this topic, you really made me think about this. You just made me think about the way light works in night scenes and how somebody might have headlights and suddenly the field is awash in light. Um, or or maybe it's moonlit, but we do, we uh, for whatever reason, nah, not for whatever reason, I'll be specific, because of the um, the design classes I took in college, <laughs> I became very much aware of of light sources in paintings and in movies and in stage. And you have to justify those types of things. And what I love about this, this scene or this sequence where, where they're racing across the plains and in specific, and I'll, and I'll, and I'll post a screenshot, the specific screenshot I'm talking about where he's carrying her after Blackie has gone down. I can see it in my head. Yeah. yeah. All of the fields are awash in light. And, and it's and it's like the Coen brothers have said, we're just we're lighting this whole thing. This is this night scene. It's a it's a dome of stars, and you can see into the distance the light of the fields, and you'll be able to see these figures in silhouette. And I love that they made that choice. Uh, I'm not sure what the light source is. It might be the moon. You see, as they're starting their journey, she watches the sun go down, and then the light of that and the light as he's walking when you see his boots i love the way those night those night shots are done and uh, the cinematographer i'm going to give credit to the cinematographers on each of these is roger deakins of course awesome. and i love the way he lights these this night shot in particular that those fields are just beautiful kelly one who's the cinematographer on paranormal activity uh roger deakins no <laughs> it's mika isn't it oh. <laughs> isn't it that's the guy's name? Yeah, Micah, Mika. What's his name? Dingus knows. Dingus, who's the cinematographer on Paranormal Activity? I'm uh, Katie Featherston. No. <laughs> the catfish guys. Ooh. There are you guys. Uh-huh. That's a good pick, Dingus. I look forward to the next two. All right, good. Uh, That's a my... horror movie, though, in a way. How dare you? How dare you? Uh, my number three is a horror movie. Uh, and it's not a very good one, unfortunately. Uh, a fellow named Brad Anderson, who uh, folks probably know from, like, Session 9, uh, his last movie was this weird thing called Vanishing on 7th Street, um, which I don't necessarily recommend. It's, it's a horror movie. It's a bit of a curiosity. It does some cool things. But what it does, the most cool thing that it does, is it creates, as the actual monster, um, nighttime or darkness, the absence of light. And it plays with this concept, like what if nighttime took over and it was like an apocalyptic nighttime and that's the monster. Um, and he does some cool things with this. There's a crappy game called Alan Wake that a, a group of Finnish developers called Remedy made. Uh, and Vanishing on 7th Street is what Alan Wake, I think, should have been or was trying to be. Uh, like that was a video game where darkness is the monster. But Vanishing on 7th Street is this kind of existential horror movie where darkness or nighttime is the monster. And there's a really cool scene that drives this home where John Leguizamo is about to be killed by the monster. And instead of saying something like, oh, don't kill me, or oh, God, I'm going to die, or you know, your typical like reaction when a monster's going to kill someone, his, his cry, like his, his protest when he's about to be killed by the nighttime monster is... I exist, which is such a weird thing, but it, it, it really brings home, you know, that's what he's screaming when the nighttime is going to eat him. 
Um, so there's some cool visual stuff here. There's a lot of like city nighttime stuff that looks like it's shot day for night. It's not particularly good. Um, but there are some cool darkness tricks. And the movie is very aware that it has a, a an odd existential tweak to it. Um, so that's my number three, Vanishing on 7th Street, directed by Brad Anderson. Are you sure he was acting when he said that? <laughs> he might have been proclaiming something about his career. Who knows? I don't know. Uh-huh. Oh! <laughs> Tom, you said that actor's name much the way I said the character name from True Grit. John Leguizamo. What? <laughs> you just said it. Dude. What's the John Leguizamo. <laughs> <laughs> John Leguizamo. Yeah, I don't know why I did that. Uh, I think you were just saying Rooster Cogburn to make it to make it clear to listeners that you didn't think his name was Cockburn. Yeah. Haha, uh-huh. you said Cockburn. <laughs> Wait, I thought it was Cockburn. Alright, so I'm the only one who's seen Vanishing on Seventh Street, is that correct? Uh is it you, the told, first you told one me not to bother, I think, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, I would wave you off of it. Kelly Wan should maybe see it. Dingus, you're not, you've got way too many good horror movies to see. Kelly Wan, you should bother. Dingus, you need to, like, you've got way too many horror movies to get around to seeing, like Martyrs, for instance. Six Other Streets, Vanishing. That's right. First see Vanishing on Fifth Avenue, then get to Sixth Street, then Seventh (laughs) Street. I've still got to see Human Centipedes, too. Yeah. Right. Work your way down those. Uh, yeah, no, I would wave you off that. I mean, you know, the lead character is Christian Haydenson, who I normally find annoying, and not because of the Star Wars thing. Why are you laughing, uh, Dingus? Dingus is laughing. Like, I, I, I kind of like what, him, though. Like, what's his name? Christian Haydenson? Did I screw it up? He's just finding dick jokes in every name, I think. But wait, now, is this, what's the Star Wars thing? Wait a minute. Who's the guy who played Anakin? Am I screwing him up? Am I mixing him up? No. Jake Chris, Lloydson. No, shut up, you guy. Wait. Don't make me Google uh-huh. this. Yeah. First off, you're, men- you're bringing up Star Wars. So you're like- <laughs> His name is Hayden Christensen. Stop oh, it. Jesus. God. No, you're right. Yeah, thank you, Dingus. I screwed that. See? See? I knew. I've always been very uncertain about him, but I didn't know if it was because I was confusing him with someone else or because Who's I'm Dingus? inverting the order of his names. Uh, oh, Vader Darth. Hayden Boy, Christensen. Dingus. Right. Hey, At any rate, so he's the lead character in Vanishing on 27- on 7th Street. Uh, <laughs> that's miracle, easier to say to you. Miracle Vanishing on. You made his name even harder to say. Than it I know. I really did screw it up. Just but I, I kind of like him in this because it's one of those rare movies where the, the lead character doesn't have to be sympathetic. Like, he's kind of a jerk to people, and it's okay. That's just who he is. Um, and and Thandie Newton. Like, we all love Thandie Newton, right? She's in it. What do, do we love her? Is love really of course we do. She was in Grid. You haven't seen Gridlocked. You would love her if you've seen Gridlocked. I don't uh, see movies with apostrophes where the E should be. Fuck about. Fair enough. Lazy fuckers. Although it is kind of E-shaped, the apostrophe. Oh, man. You just reminded me of a great night scene that I didn't pick. Good job, Tom. Well, Dingus, put it for your runners-up because I got a bunch as well. But first, Kelly Wand, what is your number two pick for an awesome nighttime scene? This one's obvious, but um, Alien, the good one. Wait a minute. All right, hey, I got well, I just a thing or two to say. Let's hear it. Well, that movie, <clears throat> it's night on the ship all the time. That's right. It's night on the planet. And yeah. night, that movie t- teaches us, it's like night's the natural state of the universe because yellow suns are rare. So we're always, just like in Vancouver, <laughs> JK. No, uh, it's always dark all the time, everywhere. You know what? Maybe I'll give you that. Dingus, how do you feel about that? Fuck Kelly Wan? Huh? 
Uh, I'm not going to do a Prometheus sigh, but I'll do a minor, minor sigh. Because Ridley Scott's now just so incapable of... It was when he was young and on cocaine, probably. So, Kelly Wan, I, I would... Like, one of the cool things... Well, cool things. Something that science fiction gets to contend with or feature in its movies is the idea that night and day are very different things. You know, night is a terrestrial concept. Uh, so, I was thinking before, one of my runners-up would be Pitch Black. Uh, mm-hmm. Where they actually play with the idea of you know night as we understand it, it's, it's a unique it's a unique thing on Earth the way it works. It works different ways in different places in the universe. So here's a cool way that we're going to play with it. Uh, in Pitch Black, I have my share of issues with it, but at least it's got a cool concept of you know what if night comes every whatever 27 years and these monsters come out and feed. And whoops, we just happen to they land eat? here. We just happen to land here. Uh, I don't yeah. know about the people who crash land there. Oh, all right. <laughs> well, this is this is why I really shied away from horror films and, and even science fiction. It's cool that you that you chose that, Kelly Wand, and I'm interested to find out what scene you're talking about in particular. Um, and I and I really stayed outside too because night. I mean, like when we when we looked at, I, I was thinking about what's that goofy Silent House. I mean, ah. the dark the darkness is defined by how you set up the house and you can put somebody in a closed room and now it's nighttime. So, so I, I, I just equate the idea of what Tom was talking about with being outside at night, but I'm interested to hear what Kelly Wan is talking about. What, what particular scene? Uh, that scene where, uh, they have John hurt in that little cigarette, butt coffin. And then they just like, you want to say anything No, And then they just like fling it away. It's like, <laughs> aren't, aren't you glad you asked Dingus? Yes. <laughs> I'm glad because I got to watch that this this week, and that oh man, it always holds a great up, moment. Huh? It's, it's just like, when that thing flies away. It's just so poignant and uh, sums it all and, up. It's like a piece of spaghetti, a bit insultingly, <laughs> <laughs> coffin shape. John Hurt. And I just I just couldn't help but think about how Ridley was right. She was right, and she should be constantly right. saying, "I was right, you idiots." And she yeah. doesn't really do that. She doesn't rub their noses in it. Who was right? Should. Ripley. Ripley, he, sorry. He just said Ridley. <laughs> wow, Ridley. Dingus. Rig- Ridley Scott. Page, Ridley. Paging Dr. Freud. Uh, Ripley was right. She was right. She yeah, and the chicken Prometheus is always wrong and a fucking idiot. So just, and you're supposed Ripley, to... Oh, she's like... Ripley was right, and she doesn't rub Veronica Cartwright's nose in it enough. But What? what Veronica Cartwright doesn't argue with her about anything. She's Veronica Cartwright gets totally bitched as usual because she just wants to get out of there. No, but Veronica Cartwright, there's there's this great weird frisson or conflict between the two of them when they're watching the the uh, medical Tom's, thing through the through the glass. Anyway, that's uh, a good pick, Kel. Tom was too turned on by Veronica Cartwright to pay attention to the alien. I'm telling you, young Veronica Cartwright, super cute. Porsche Double Day. Veronica yep. Cartwright, the birds. Same I mean, girl. Not, not back then, but I mean, she was a she was a, a cute little girl, and she grew up to be a beautiful woman. So there, Kelly Wand. What about Veronica Cartwright? <laughs> <laughs> By the way, did Dingus just try to use colloquially the word frisson? Did you hear that, Kelly Wand? Uh, did you miss kinda, it? It's hard I don't. I don't to... know what that means. I shouldn't have done that. I apologize. He rolled it out, and then he immediately had to call in a substitute. Yep. <laughs> I called somebody uh, off the and bench. And Tom did a sports analogy. <laughs> <laughs> I think this called an audible on Frizon. Well done. All right. 
Dingus, so your uh, no, oh no, that was Kelly Wan's number two, Alien. Dingus, what is your number two? And give us a line from it. Now here's a line from it. Okay. Is this is this going to be our time? Ah, uh, good one. See, what does that have to do with? It's at night time, and it's an awesome yeah, scene. But I want to hear. Yeah, I want to hear your justification for picking uh, Winter's Bone, Dingus. All right. Uh, I went into uh, Winter's Bone thinking that the scene I was going to choose was going to be the um, climactic scene. Right. Um, but as it turns out, it's really a daytime scene, and some of it is done just filtered. It's very weird. It's, 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 there's a lot of either it's day for night or it's just dark, but daytime. I mean, you can very clearly see a blue sky uh, when they're in the boat and uh, fishing. Um, and it's not as dark as I remember. I remember the women walking with the burlap sack and the chainsaw and the flashlight as being clearly a nighttime scene. And it's not that at all. I was totally wrong about that. Because it happens during, like, dawn or something, or just because it is shot day for night and you can tell? I don't know. I think okay. it's supposed to be dusk and it's supposed to be increasingly dark, but um, they just have a hard time cheating it. Okay. Uh, it just doesn't quite work, um, although it works tonally perfectly because, I think, largely because of the actors. It's... It's it's beautifully put together, but as far as just looking at a night scene, it's not really a night scene. Okay. Um, but that scene with uh, the sheriff, um, Garrett Dillahunt, who we all thank love, you, Garrett, Garrett Dillahunt approaching the pickup truck. Uh, that scene can't be done in the daytime because of the things that are done in that scene with reflection and light. The lights uh, from the sheriff's car the headlights and the flashlight and the reflections on the side mirrors and the rear view mirror on John Hawk's face and on Jennifer Lawrence's face. Um, it's, it's a great night scene for those reasons. There's a, there's another night scene that I had to discount because the, the street is flooded with light that isn't there. And this, this feels like all sourced light. And I, I just love the way, the tension builds because it's a nighttime scene because of what John Hawks has just done, beating up some guy's pickup truck window, driving off, going to this grave site, which again has a little too much light in it. But this scene on the road with him being pulled over and the way the light goes through the mirrors and the windows, I think it can only be done at night. And I love the way it's shot. Good. Okay. And and uh, the the cinematographer is a guy named uh, Michael McDonough. What do you think of that, Kelly Wand? I think it's uh, it shouldn't count because <laughs> um, for something to be night, you have to actually see the sky. Ah, good point. Instead of the windshield, and therefore, uh, blah, well, Kelly blah, Wand. Kelly then Wand. I think you're going to like my number two because it oh. opens with an establishing shot. Of the sky, making it very clear that it's night. Not only is it the sky, you see in the distance uh, the lights of a city. Star Wars. Close. <laughs> uh, so, at the height of his craft, like Steven Spielberg just did some amazing sequences. 
Uh, and I really feel that the uh, one of the early scenes in Close Encounters where, where Barry, the little kid, uh, where the house gets presumably, I mean, I don't know what the fiction of this, presumably one of the aliens comes in the house and ransacks the refrigerator and then runs out through a dog door. I mean, it's, it's never really clear what the aliens are doing when they come into the house, but whatever is going on, there's this great establishing shot of Melinda Dillon's house. And there's a little title card that says Muncie, Indiana, and you get this beautiful starry sky, and there's the house on one side, and way off in the distance is the glow of Muncie, Indiana, you know, the city lights. Uh, and it's a beautiful composition. And then later on, Spielberg will not be able to resist putting a frickin' shooting star up there. But fortunately, <laughs> this is early enough that he's not doing that crap yet. So you get this great establishing shot of nighttime and the vastness of it and how they're remote from city lights. You know, they're out in this rural area. And then as it plays with that scene, you know, it, we're experiencing this nighttime through the eyes of Barry, this this weird little kid who I'm convinced was cast because he looks like a gray. I mean, he's got this little tiny mouth <laughs> and the big eyes. He lo- This kid, I didn't remember this from the movie, this kid looks freaky. He's a little scary looking. Uh, but we're experiencing this sense of, like, wonder and mystery and this slight ominousness of nighttime through Barry as he runs around the house you know, and the, and the way that it's the lighting is coming through the window and playing with the, the, the wind blowing through the tree branches. You know, there's that shadow, uh, the way curtains blow, when he finds a screen door wide open, you know, the dog door flapping open. All this is this great sense of something mysterious happening at nighttime. Uh, and I love that opening part of, of Close Encounters. And the toys also like running yeah. amok. He ends up playing a, a, a lot with this stuff in E.T. And, and even the Poltergeist movie that Toby Hooper did. You can see a lot of that there. Um, but a lot of this was established in that opening scene in, 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 Poltergeist, in uh, Close Encounters. And just to be specific, I'm not talking about where the UFOs finally come and get Barry. Because that gets way over the top with like, the fun house kind of stuff. There's a scene where Melinda Dillon is like holding Barry and there's all this like crazy stuff like the the oven is like jumping around and it's turned on and it looks like something out of a uh like that that dream sequence in Requiem for a Dream where the refrigerator comes alive and scares Ellen <laughs> Burst. Like the some of the screws of the radiator. The screws of the radiators are scary and creepy and, and you know when Barry opens the door and the red light is coming through, like all that stuff is way over the top. But the first sequence, and it's one of those sequences like that f- fantastic air traffic controller scene that we've talked about. Like one of the, the first three scenes of Close Encounters, you know, you have them discovering the planes, whatever. But then right after that, you have that amazing air traffic controller sequence. And then you have the Muncie, Indiana stuff, which introduces Melinda Dillon. And then it introduces Richard Dreyfus's character when he goes out to take care of the blackouts. Like those first three scenes, air traffic control Melinda Dillon's house and Richard Dreyfus driving around. Those are amazing bits of work. Uh, and I and the cat boast boat in the desert scene. That was, that's good too, right? Not nighttime, of course, but uh, yeah. I mean, that's this whole B plot going on, which I think is the less interesting part of Close Encounters. You know, the scientists discovering stuff, whatever. Uh, um, Did it ever seem weird to you that the aliens never tell anyone when the ship's coming? Like, how'd they have enough time to make the thing by Devil's Tower? I'm how'd sure they... that maybe Steven Spielberg will do a prequel that answers those questions uh, uh, uh. that we want. <laughs> Don't say it as a joke. You're invoking it. 
You're summoning. I, I do wonder why do UFOs always come like in Prometheus they land during the day and they're like, Hey, we don't have much time till night. Why do UFOs always come to Earth at night? Like why don't they ever come during the day? And get the bumpkins and then give them anal just to drop in, just because it's easier to see what's going on, right? Why are they flying around at night when it's hard to see? Whereas when we go to a planet, you know, we land there because to have the presence of mind to come down when we can see. Tom, I took my lizard to the beach one time. <laughs> Kelly Bond. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Euphemism. What does that mean? As we say up here. All right, well, Kelly Wan, speaking of your lizard on the beach, what is your number one pick for an awesome nighttime scene? Remember that song, too, on Barry's record player? Yes! <laughs> it's not a square, square is four sides. Yeah, it's like, where is Mr. Square? Yeah, I love that. Did it's you ever the- wonder what that meant? Like, was Spielberg saying that Barry's super smart, or that we're all dumbasses? Or rec- oh. the aliens like our music, or they like geometry? No, it's, well, it shows his little record player turning on. It's just what he had on it at the time. And it's this weird cognitive dissonance between this happy little preschooler song and all this crazy stuff happening in the house. I think that was a Stephen Stills song, wasn't it? I think it's, ugh, no one knows what you're talking about who hasn't seen Prometheus. You lucky bastards out there. <laughs> we should be so lucky. All right, Kelly One, what is your number one pick for an awesome nighttime scene? If you were Melinda Dillon's character, wouldn't she be like, if you really want to go that ba- Like, if I'm such a terrible mother to you that you're more interested in these fucking little friends of yours, just stay with them. I don't think that's how parents work, Kelly Wand. Because, <laughs> well, Roy, or Richard Dreyfus leaves his family, but somehow her, she gives a shit about her family. His family's jerks. They're not, uh-huh. they're loud. They want to go, they want to go play goofy golf instead of see Pinocchio. They don't understand him. Why don't we gonna they call him Roy Scheider? <laughs> anyway, my number one is House of the Devil, because that night was dark as fuck. Ah, that's the darkest night I've ever seen in a movie. It was supernaturally dark. It couldn't well, be none more black. There was a lunar <laughs> eclipse. I mean, that's not supernatural. That's science. They didn't show it. And yeah, they did. I was looking at that movie th- off a piece of cardboard, so I didn't see it. <laughs> All right. House of the Devil. Lighting. Good, Good pick. Uh, how much does that song by The Fix play into the nighttime stylings of House of the Devil, Kelly Wand? One thing leads to another is like, um, it, it's like what the movie's about, because one hour leads to the eclipse, <laughs> leads to the uh, poisoned uh, pizza, poisoned uh, fingertip, Michael Fassbender. Kelly Wand, can you give us a line from House of the Devil? Uh, it's in you. Wait, no. Kelly Wan, if you were to play one of the roles, if we were all three cast in House of the Devil, which parts would we each play? I'd be the pizza. No, wrong. You would be Tom Noonan's character. Why? It's because I have mom issues. It's just, that's just, I think, that's how I see you, Kelly Wan. Okay, next try. Who would Dingus play? Tom Noonan's character also? Nope, he would be Jocelyn Donahue. Why? How come he gets to be her? I want to be... Dingus is of the th- of the three of us. Dingus is the cutest. If we if it's going to be us, you know, we we need Dingus to play the chick. Sorry, that's true. And so who am and, I? And Tom is AJ Bowen. Exactly. Thank you. I All right, think we I got sound that. the cutest, but Dingus. is <laughs> All right, we got that out of the way. Dingus, what is your number one pick for an awesomest nighttime scene? And maybe give us a quote from it. 
All right, here's a quote from it. I don't blame him for not knowing. I blame him for saying he did, that fool. <laughs> I don't know what that's from, but I liked whatever little... That Stingus is Irish. Tweak. Yeah, there was there was some kind of accent tweak. That fool. Uh, I don't I know what that was. trying to sound black. I think so, too. So something with Denzel Washington. Uh, unstoppable. Cockburn. The movie. <laughs> Uh, what was it, Dingus? You've you've uh, you've stumped both of us. <laughs> you guys really don't know. Say it another line. Let's hear it again. Let's hear Do it, it better this time. I don't blame him for not knowing. I blame him for saying he did. That fool. Starsky and Hutch. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's that's a a quote from the actual scene. Um. Jeez, well, I can't no believe you guys don't know this. All right, um, start all over. Come up with a new list. Here's a uh, here's a here's another here's a little bit of dialogue for that. That's very comforting, Mister Tethero. Well, we've made one decision. This will be a bad dream soon. Mister Tethero, oh, I know that name. What is that? Is that from Moonrise Kingdom? Who who is named Tethero in a movie? Dad Gummit, is that Battleship? Jesus. Kelly Wan, what movie had someone named Tethero? That sounds familiar. Silver Street. No. Dadgum. It's got to be Moonrise Kingdom. No. Tethero? That's not a real name. It's only something in a movie, and I know I've heard it before. Driving Miss Daisy. No, it's something we saw recently. Tethero? Tethero isn't something we saw recently. Yes, it is. Why? Is that the husband's name? No, it's totally something we saw recently. Tethero. I can't believe you saw Snow White. On your own. All right, Dingus, we need another hint. We're, we're it's, like my, it's like my feet have gloves. I can handle the ground. Wild Wild West. That's <laughs> Kevin Klein. Like Positive, that's his Kevin Klein. have gloves. I can handle the ground. All right, that does, uh, that's another great nighttime scene. In he sure knows already, a lot of lines from here's it. The, here's the, well, I love this movie. All right, here's the final Fresh line I'm going to give you. Is he ignorant or just plain evil? That's my quandary. Oh, it's uh, Meek's cutoff. Yes. Oh, Tethero, right, duh. Uh, there's no nighttime scenes in that movie, Dingus, because they have to shut everything down and sleep at night because you can't see for Pete's sake. Shut them all down. <laughs> Tethero. So is Tethero uh, Will Patton and Michelle Williams' character's last name? Absolutely. Yes. Awesome, awesome, Dingus. All right, so Absolutely. yeah, there's no nighttime scenes in this, but otherwise, great pick. Let's hear about it. Why did you pick this? All right, uh, as soon as you decried... Chernobyl Diaries because you couldn't see anything. I started thinking about Meek's Cutoff and wondering if I, I could pick it, which made me get to watch it again this week. So thank you very much, Tom. Um, and one of the wonderful things about the nighttime scenes in this movie is how how Kelly Reichardt parcels out light. Uh, you get to see bits of faces or nothing of faces, and you only see the faces that you're supposed to see in certain times. And I don't know if this is on purpose or not. Oh, but by the way, the, the cinematographer is Chris um, Blauvelt, I think is the guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the, the first scene... The, the, okay, let me just go. The, the specific scene I'm talking about is the one the quote comes from. It's when, um, when, when Solomon and El- Emily... Uh, obviously played by Will Patton and Michelle Williams are in the tent and the lantern is behind them and it's illuminated. And it's basically their silhouettes and they're having this discussion, but you can see her and he's just sort of a silhouette and they're discussing. Uh, 
that that's the the nighttime scene I'm really focusing on, and it's inside a tent, so I'm breaking my rule about not being inside. Um, but it's kind of outside too. Um, I I just love the way that that scene is lit, and I love the way nighttime is is in this movie because it's just it's so thick. Uh, the first scene where they're walking with the lantern, you can just see a lantern. You can barely even right. see them. And and then there's the scene where where Will Patton uh, uh, Solomon is fixing the wagon wheel, and you can see his his face in the wagon wheel. Or when when Emily delivers the bread. I I love the way the nighttime is viewed in this movie. But the specific scene I'm talking about is the two of them in the tent with the lantern behind them, and you just see the two of them discussing um, discussing Meek. Mm-hmm. Good. So there you go. Kelly One, I'm surprised you didn't remember the name Tethero from Meek's Cutoff. Uh, I don't remember the names of movies that I didn't like the first time I saw them, <laughs> and then later I put them on a top ten list. <laughs> <laughs> Only so much time in the day. All right, let's have some runners-up. What do you guys got? Uh, yeah. Listen to Tom's cat. <laughs> critique our podcast i'll name one then okay so uh so one of the things about paranormal activity too is that like struggling with nighttime has always been a part of of horror you know vampires can only come out at night and werewolves get changed by the moon at night uh and paranormal activity is so modern in terms of how we view nighttime and why that matters you know uh, so I love how that casts that mythology. Like it, it brings nighttime into that mythology. But another movie that has a scary nighttime scene that I think is uniquely frightening in a way that we haven't seen in a lot of horror movies uh, is the opening of Jaws. You know, this idea of swimming at night. First of all, that's mm. insane because what if there are big, scary, mean things down there? And then when one of them gets you, like I, I that to this day, like I cannot imagine going swimming in the ocean. At night, that's insane. Who would do that? You do that. I thought. I thought you were a diver. Well, you know, that's, I'm glad you mentioned that, Kelly. One, because diving at night is very different because you're down in there and you can see completely visibility. When you when you go scuba diving at night, you mm. always know exactly where you are. You know, the light of the boat you've come from is always visible. You know, the light that you've got a t- that your buddy is using. You always know where he is. Uh, visibility, it's like floating in space. It's very different, and it doesn't have that scariness where you can't see, because you can shine your light wherever you want, and it'll it'll illuminate something. But when you're swimming at night, you know, on, you know, sort of poised over this gulf, floating there, just treading water, and you can't see underneath you, that's terrifying to me. And so scuba diving is completely different. But swimming, that's insane. Who would do that? Uh, so back-to-back Spielberg opening scenes in movies for you very well very good exactly uh-huh and uh if you shine your light right down you can't see shit though right when you scoop it either no you can see i mean the light how it depends can, on how, but it, it goes depends, down for yeah depends on the visibility in the water uh you can see as far as the water's visibility would allow you to which is like three height. feet and then it goes down for thousands of feet <laughs> if you're diving Doesn't. in thousands of feet well, but not you on an oil derrick or something right? i've done that right but normally and there you can't see anything even during the day but when you dive at night, you tend to want to go somewhere where you can get to the bottom. So you tend to dive in, you know, 30, 40 feet of water. Uh, uh, so you oh drop down, you can see around you, and, uh, you know, it, it's it's creepy, but it's not scary. Like scuba it sounds dive horrifying. No, swimming at night is horrifying. Who would do that? No, nobody should ever do that. Don't go in the water at night. 
you're just asking for it. Scuba diving sounds worse than swimming. Scuba diving's fine. You're fine. You're weird. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So Dingus mentioned uh, Meek's Cutoff. There's another really cool but but little-seen Australian horror movie called The Long Weekend. Uh, And it's, it's about this couple that goes camping and their marriage is just in an awful state, and they're trying to escape civilization and get back to nature. And the movie is kind of about how, really, you shouldn't be taking those problems out into nature because nature will eat you. And it is icky, and terrible things happen, and you don't know what's going on. And The Long Weekend has these horrifying like nighttime scenes where you don't know what's going on, and there's something moving, and some creepy animal, and some weird noise, and it ends up destroying them. Uh, I love this, I think it's 1980 or something, horror movie called The Long Weekend, and specifically just how freaky the nighttime scenes are in that movie. Hmm. Other runners up. Come on, surely you guys have stuff. What's the Fellini one where the reporter's always doing shit at night, and he never sleeps, and he goes to all those parties and gets drunk? Uh, eight and a half. Is that one or La Dolce Vita? Same fucking movie. Right? Well, that Midnight Paris plays with that a bit, doesn't it? This idea that, you know, that, yeah. nighttime in a European city and weird things happen and it's very different. Is that movie good? I'm supposed to watch that. Yeah, you, you would like that, I think. Dingus, you, you've gone to bat for Midnight in Paris. You like the that. The title's a spoiler, and I'm assuming <laughs> it's the last minute of the movie or the first minute of the movie. I, I like that movie quite a bit. Hmm. Uh, the uh, a runner-up I would have is a little bit unfair because it's from a play. Um, it's it's this one of my favorite scenes in Henry V is uh, when um, when the king goes and disguises himself to and walks among his soldiers, and he has this scene with um, I think the guy's name is William, and he's just dis, he's just He's cloaked because he's wearing uh, he's wearing uh, he's wearing the cloak of of one of his countrymen, um, but he's not he's not out as the king, and so he's just having a talk with this normal guy, and uh, he's talking about the battle to come. It's right before the Battle of Agincourt, and I I just love that nighttime scene and how the knight is supposed to disguise him, and I like I one of the things I love about. Shakespeare plays is how somebody could put on a hat and suddenly, hey, it's a girl. Uh, or, hey, it's a guy. And you can't tell. Um, but I, I like that he does that at night, and I like the way Kenneth Branagh films it with with him in that nighttime scene. I, that's just one of my favorite nighttime scenes. I think it's, so. would you say in that scene that there's very much frisson? Uh, there's a lot of um, je ne sais quoi, I would say. Would you say the spigot is like a marshmallow? At the moment of <laughs> Kelly Wan, we're talking Shakespeare. Oh, I, sorry. Regret, I regret I everything I've said. <laughs> oh. uh, Stole my line. Up. What about, what about um, I, am, I Am Legend? That's kind of cool, this idea that at nighttime you have to hunker down with the dog in the bathtub. Mm, no? You don't no. get a sense of how long he's doing that. Well, you know, they actually did that better i think in the vincent price one where yeah. they made it clear that he had to be back at night because right. during the night all of his neighbors would come out and call him out by name and say come out like there it was this it predated like the romero zombies so this was kind of an early conception of what if there's creatures in the night that can only come out at night and they can talk uh you know mega man they'd catapult fireballs uh, oh God. into his it, wet bar while he's playing piano <laughs> 
I am, the problem with I Am Legend, as far as that's concerned, is that he has a fortress for himself, and he can make nighttime whenever he wants. Um, but but the the thing that you remind me of, Tom, is the audio. Is when the, when they're in the bathtub and you just hear the the screaming outside. Yep. Um, the the one that I had to discount and I really wanted was uh, Take Shelter, specifically the scene where Curtis. Uh, where after after having the day at school or the the parents' day at school or whatever it is, they're driving home and he pulls off to the side of the road and there's the storm happening. Um, it's a beautiful nighttime scene because the storm is beautiful, but the the highway behind him or the exit ramp, whatever it is behind him, is just totally illuminated, and there's no reason for it to be. Right. And so I I just had to uh, I just remembered that scene differently. I remembered. The lightning flashes on the faces of of his wife and his child differently. None of that is that's all in my memory, uh, and the and the the road is just too illuminated, so I had to drop it. Uh, nighttime lightning is almost impossible to do fake to yeah. fake, just because of the way lightning illuminates the entire right. landscape. And so often in like a TV show or a crappy movie, lightning is just one powerful light. Like it's basically a key light in the foreground and the, the background is as dark as ever. Yeah, nighttime lightning sucks in most movies. I actually, so, oh, good Lord, I couldn't believe this. Freaking Steven Spielberg, Close Encounters. The scene where Barry's about to get kidnapped, uh, where he is, Melinda Dillon's out there hanging up the wire. Or no, she's taking the trash out. And you see this great imagery in the background of the storm clouds, but the lights are coming down out of them with the UFOs. And there's a shot of Barry looking out the window, grinning. And, and laughing because they're about to come. And the camera pushes in on him from outside the window. And I, I don't, maybe you guys don't notice this. When I notice this, it drives me, it's as, it's as ridiculous as a boom mic slipping into the frame. Close encounters of the third kind in this movie, in this scene, camera shadow. Right there on the freaking windowsill. What? As the camera's moving forward, a big old black shadow comes up. And I was like, oh, God, no, Steven. Maybe the aliens you? placed the shadow there to test our faith. Oh, God. Camera shadow in Close Encounters. I just can't believe that kind of it's stuff. It's a ship shadow, maybe. It's not. It's the camera. Don't, do, you, do you guys ever see that and notice that kind of thing? No, like I, I'm, Well, I'm okay with that in like a crappy B movie, but in a major movie, good Lord, camera shadow is so retarded. Uh, maybe that's just me. No, I see it too, and it annoys me. <laughs> All right, anyway, so uh, enough runners-up, right? Anything else? Mm. All right, Kelly Wand, what will our 3x3 three three be for next week? I think I tried to do this one once before, and you guys bitched and moaned, and I cha- had to change it, but I'm bringing it out again, unless we already did it. Uh, three <laughs> best audience member reactions? Are you talking about penises? <laughs> if there's one involved, or more. Because isn't that scene in Diner technically about an audience member reaction? Ah, uh, well done, Tom. <sighs> I can see you people are not going to take this seriously. <laughs> That's fine. Your grades will be reflected in the final curve, and we'll see who graduates. <laughs> and who goes to prom? Nepheus. So, Kelly, there, just there to- was a moment during prom, Nepheus, where one of my audience members went, "That was great." <laughs> Wait, what part? But yeah, careful, careful. Yeah, let's not yeah. spoil Prometheus during the three by three. Oh, right. We already, that was enough. Uh, so, so Kelly, one just to, to verify, this is reactions within the context of a movie, or no. what we're watching movies. Yes. Okay. You don't like these because they're about you and me. But I want to hear. Where, I some of these are like I want to see what other people 
say, Anna. All right. Okay. I don't care about yours as much. <laughs> Audience. Well, I've heard all yours. Sure. I already know a couple of yours. Well, maybe I'll come up with some new ones. And for what it's worth, the, Dingus kind of inspired this one because I always really enjoy his tales of what people said around him during things. All right. I, I thought maybe there'd been a few that he was sandbagging, and I want to see if there's any new ones. So more tales from Dingus. Good. Uh, that will be our three by three. <laughs> I don't know what to make of that. <laughs> so our movie next week uh, will not be. What is it? That's my boy. No, that a boy. That's. That's, that a boy, Sandler. Isn't it like? Is it that's my boy, or did I just make that? Stop up? saying that. Stop it. Stop it's, saying that. It, well, it will not be like that. We are. It, we, it will not be the movie next week. We're not going to see that. Jesus, Pete. What do you people take us for? What we will be seeing is uh, Snow White and the Huntsman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, take that, Adam Sandler. We're going to see a Kristen Stewart movie, motherfucker. Why are you giggling at that? I, I really liked it a lot. We'll see what you guys think. And we are going to tie in to the discussion, by the way, just in case you want to be on board with this. Uh, John Carter, not of Mars, just straight up John Carter, uh, just came out on DVD. So we might fold in a little talk about the John Carter movie with our Snow White and the Huntsman movie. It's primarily a Snow White and the Huntsman podcast, but there will be uh, a sort of a maybe some sidebar John Carter talks. So What's just the connection to... between those two? Movies? Well, you know what? I'm... Folks will have to tune in next week and find out, won't they? Just like they'll have to tune into the Prometheus sequel to understand. Because, the, what they... because John Carter was the version that Tarsum directed. What? Now, by the way, you don't have to watch the Tarsum Mirror Mirror next week. We're not going to go into that. Oh. That was a Tarsum movie. And, you know, you know what? No, it was a Julia Roberts movie. But Tarsum was involved. I know Julia Roberts directed it, and Tarsum starred. <laughs> that no, we... it, it, it actually says in the credits, Tarsum involved. <laughs> Many Tarsums were harmed during the filming. Oh, <laughs> Too soon. Oh. So no, my you... name is Tom Chick. This has been the Quarter 3 Movie Podcast for Prometheus. Join us next week for Snow White and the Huntsman and our 3 by 3 of audience member reactions. I have been joined by... Christian Wierzbowski. Uh, it's Christian Morosky. Mm, if you say so. And Kelly Wand. The Terminal had a good night scene, too. And I think it's gonna be a long, long time. Touchdown brings me round again to find. Now I think. Oh, I didn't get to my camera. Give us your. Kelly Wand, how about a Cananidote with a little Elton John in the background? Uh, so Friday night before I'd seen Prometheus, I'm waiting on a train, on a platform for a train, and then this, like, dude, you know those, like, slacker dudes who look really proud of themselves, and they talk really loud? Probably how I used to be a long time ago. He's all, I could hear him saying this exactly this loud a tone. You want me to spoil the whole movie for you? Okay. And then he starts proceeding to, like, describe the end of Prometheus, like, Totally considered pushing him onto the train tracks. <laughs> no one would have thought the worst of you if you'd done that, Kelly Wand. But then uh, I didn't. That's how crazy Canada is. In America, I would have, but it's mellowed me here. And that man lived. And he saw Prometheus. Ha ha. <laughs> I'll have a better one next. And there's no one there to raise them. If you did 
is an appropriate song. I hadn't thought about it. See? Oh, because it's Steven Stills. Now I get it. Is that tobacco in your respirator? 